hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, Wednesday security seminar yet again. Um, it is it is my distinct pleasure to introduce someone who uh, is is really a legend in the, the field of cybersecurity to the people who've been working in it for a while. Um, he's uh, he's got a history that goes back in this field um, about fifty years, really. Uh, with uh, started in MITRE Corporation, um, then went to Digital Equipment Corporation and participated in the development of uh, one of the first um, A1 secure systems under the old Orange Book series, the Rebo series. Uh, after more time at MITRE and trusted information systems, he went to Microsoft uh, where he was uh, uh, partner director of software security and helped lead the development of the software uh, security lifecycle, software development lifecycle there at, at Microsoft. Um, after doing a lot of work there, and, and uh, I'll say that Microsoft uh, kernel went from being one of the, the least uh, trustworthy kernels to one of the most un under his supervision. Uh, he retired a few years ago and is now the executive direct, director of SafeCode. So he has a long history of experience building very secure systems and helping to secure systems that weren't quite as secure. And along the way, learned some lessons, and he's going to share those with us today. So, Steve, thank you so much. Take it away. Thank, thank you, Spat. Thank you, Spaff. Um, so you you sort of you sort of hinted at some of the things that um, that you know that I was going to introduce in the in the first first uh, first slide. Um, I uh, as you, as you said, I started I actually started working on on computer security as it was called then in uh, in 1970, and I I never I never quite got out of it actually. My my boss at Mitre said, we've got this problem. And I said, well, my degrees in civil engineering, I don't know anything about the, you know, computer science or, you know, you're probably talking about proving programs. I don't know anything about that. <clears throat> you want to get somebody with the right background. And, and he said, well, I, that makes sense to me, but I don't have anybody to put on that assignment right now. Why don't you just see what you can do until, uh, until we can hire somebody with the right background. And that was in 1970 and I never quite got out. Um, and a um, lot of interim steps, which Spaff alluded to, and which I'll talk a little more about in the following slide. Um, as, uh, as Spaff said, I joined Microsoft in 99, uh, was primarily responsible for the creation of the security development lifecycle process um, that did make a, a, a difference in the, in the way we looked at building secure systems uh, and retired from, from Microsoft in 15, started working at SafeCode in 16. SafeCode is a, is a small nonprofit. Members are companies in the industry. Um, they all have uh, secure development processes um, similar to the security development lifecycle. And so as executive director, I try to sort of provide uh, strategic and technical guidance um, this presentation isn't about SDL or things that 
um, I, I've normally given, given talks about a lot. Um, instead, more for, you know, sort of new folks in the field or folks who are trying to learn some of the background or, or history or, or other considerations, it's focused on mistakes. Things that I did that I wish I hadn't done or wish I hadn't done as much of over the last 50 years. Uh, and maybe, maybe, that, maybe that tells you something about how to think about what you're facing and hearing. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up with some, some lessons learned and suggestions. And then uh, I hope that'll get, and I hope I'll do that in time to, uh, to let, you, let you get on with your, your day and, um, and, and consistent with the, uh, with the schedule for the, for the class. Um, so relevant career history, as, um, as, uh, as Pat said, I was with the MITRE Corporation. Actually, I was with MITRE from 70 to 81, 69 to 81. Um, so these are the times I was working on primarily on security. Um, and that was uh, at MITRE just from 70 to 76. I did other things before and after that time. Um, 81 to 92 with Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, company doesn't exist anymore. Um, mini computers, super mini computers. Um, the, the industry took a turn to, to PCs, digital didn't, and that was the end of digital. Trusted information systems, um, largely a government research contractor. We built a, a, a commercial business, went public. Um, I was with the company seven got bought out uh, by a bigger company in the, in the security business in 98. Um, and then Microsoft um, lives on. I talked to those folks, they're a safe code member, uh, but I was there just from 99 to 2015. I joined them to run the Security Response Center, which was the organization that dealt with externally discovered holes in Microsoft products. And I used to joke that when I joined them in 1999, I was, uh, I was 20 years old. And you're supposed to look at my appearance now, um, add 20 to the 20, 20 to the time since, since I supposedly, since I joined them in 99 and laugh at the aging effects of, uh, of working for Microsoft on vulnerability response back in the day. Um, but in fact, it was, it was an interesting adventure um, not really primary primary subject of this of this talk. So let's talk about about some of the mistakes. Um, mistake one was um, was is is the Bell Lapagula model. I don't know whether you've uh, studied multi level security, whether you've studied security models, uh, but Bell Lapagula was one of the earliest um, security models for dealing with, uh, with, with classified information. Um, it was explicitly driven by the objective of, of meeting the Defense Department's needs for what they called multi-level security. I want a system that can handle both top secret information, uh, which is uh, very sensitive, can cause damage to the national security, and unclassified information which is, is public or, or close to it. And I want users who are only authorized for, um, for unclassified information 
to to darn sure not be able to uh, not be able to access uh, classified information, not be able to access top secret information. And so our um, our first challenge when we started thinking about that um, that requirement was to figure out, well, okay, what does that mean in precise terms that we could implement with a, with a computer system? And a couple of uh, really very good mathematicians named uh, David Bell and Len LaPagula, uh, both of whom are now members of the National Cybersecurity Hall of Fame, um, tackled that problem. And they came up with a mathematical model um, whose effects I've tried to illustrate with the, with the graphic here. Um, you have top secret files, you have unclassified files, um, you have top secret cleared user or process and an unclassified user or process. And the rules of the model, I won't give you the mathematics, um, are that the unclassified user can read or write um, the unclassified mob file and the top secret user or process can read or write the top secret but can only read uh, only read the unclassified file. And so that gives you sharing of information that's consistent with the DoD model for, uh, for information security. And it also has the effect, which is important in building a real computer system, that even if the top secret user or top secret process is running um, a Trojan horse, some, some very untrustworthy software, um, it can't take the top secret and disclose it down into an unclassified file and um, and 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 you know thence out out the internet or out the door in somebody's pocket um, and do harm to national security. So at the time that was you know that was the requirement set and the model was a was a major breakthrough. It wasn't the first uh, uh, security model that attempted to address multi-level security. But it was um, it was the first that was resistant at a model level uh, to this to this threat from Trojan horse programs. Um, and if you so if you built a system right that enforced that model, um, it was um, it, it was pretty useful and a, and a pretty significant breakthrough. Um, and we actually built it into a time-shared Multic system um, that was used at an Air Force data center in the Pentagon. And I believe there were, there were other Multic systems in the Defense Department that probably used the model as well. And it worked, quote, okay there. Um, the users were happy with it. They shared information, they shared programs, um, and, and it, was, it was usable in that context of a 70s time-sharing system. Um, I believed, as I say here, that it was a general solution for multi-level security. You know, if you've got a system, uh, if you've got a, a requirement for a system that's gonna cla handle classified information, Bell-Lapagula Bell is your answer. Turned out that Bell-Lapagula wasn't your answer. Um, in practice, there were too many reasons to violate 
the, the requirements of the model. Um, what's an example? Well, I, I get a, I, I'm, I'm logged in at top secret cruising along and I get an unclassified email and I want to reply to it. Okay, so now I have to log out, log in as an unclassified user, and then I can reply. But from top secret, I can't, um, I can't, I can compose a reply. But when I click send back to the unclassified user, um, the, the model enforcement is going to say, nope, you can't do that. And in the real world, what we did was wound up, was wind up inventing pop-up fatigue. Um, anybody remember Windows Vista and the, uh, um, the, the allow or deny permission when, when people wanted to install new software? Well, that was a very similar model called the BIBA integrity model working its way with a highly interactive, uh, uh, highly interactive system with real world users. Um, I, I remember seeing um, a mail system that was running the Bell of Agile model where, you know, where we had users just sort of constantly clicking okay, clicking okay, clicking okay. And, you know, and that clicking okay says there's not actually any top secret information going down there. And, you know, and, and if, if, if people have to do that once a minute or more often, there's no way they're exercising judgment. They're just clicking okay. So uh, good idea didn't stand, uh, couldn't, couldn't really withstand uh, interaction with, with the real world. Um, mistake two was kind of a compound on, on mistake on, mis, on, on Bella Padula. Um, the Defense Department, I think Spaff referred to the Orange Book, the Defense Department built, liked Bell and Lepadula, and they built it um, as a core tenet of uh, their Orange Book security evaluation criteria of the, of the 1980s. Um, and so uh, there were various levels of systems that, uh, that, that you could build depending on how much effort you put into enforcing the rules and making the system secure. Um, at the highest level, you, uh, you, had, you had to implement the Bell Lepadula model and you had to do that with high assurance, formal, formal specification, formal verification. I sold Digital Equipment Corporation on the proposition that we needed to be in that security market. And so what we should do was build an A1 system, a system that was as secure as DOD knew how to evaluate. Um, and we actually built um, a virtual machine monitor um, for the VAX architecture uh, super, super mini computers. That, um, that implemented Ballopadula, uh, used a virtual machine monitor architecture to minimize the amount of software that we had to trust. Um, and still, because it was a VMM, still provided compatibility with, um, with the existing user, user code and operating systems that ran on the VAX architecture. So here's a little sketch uh, from a from a paper, you, you've got multiple virtual machines, one at top secret, one at secret, one at unclassified, some of them running VAX, uh, VMS, some of them running the, the Ultrix operating system, which was DEX Unix. We got that for free. 
The minimal mechanism was all in the, the VMM, the virtual machine monitor security kernel. Users connected through that. And if you had to, uh, you know, if you had to switch from top secret to, to unclassified, uh, we gave them an easy way to do that. Um, so it was pretty cool. Uh, we built it. Um, we got it to the point where we were actually able to, uh, to, to dog food it, to self-host it in our development group. And we were doing the, uh, the SVS development on SVS systems, uh, which is sort of a test of whether you've got a system or not. Um, and and that, was all, that was all pretty cool. Um, but there were some, some real world problems. Um, the, you know, the, as I've shown, shown on this slide, um, the development wasn't easy. Uh, we were trying to minimize the trusted code. Um, the uh, performance, VMM performance is, is a potential problem in any case. Um, and the, the VAX wasn't really designed to be vir virtual machine monitor friendly. Um, I think that systems like VMware today offer, uh, implement some technologies that might either have been not viable, the machines as slow as the VAXs were, or, or we just didn't have them. Um, and then uh, the, uh, the, the, the performance, the, the security evaluation process for our secure system was what I would call adversarial. Um, you know, the the uh, evaluation people got points for fine, you know, for making us fail, not for making us succeed. And so that was that was interesting. Uh, all those things said, we ran well behind schedule. I don't think we ran over budget because we uh, we we always had trouble getting enough people. You know, just hiring enough people to work on the thing, um, but we eventually got the system done enough to be in beta test, um, and some of the users liked it. But in general, users had moved on. Um, they they wanted PCs. This was the late '80s. They wanted PCs. They wanted networks. They wanted graphical user interfaces. And what we had was a terminal time sharing system that was really worked really well compatible with the technologies that you had in the mid 80s. And so, you know, my characterization is nobody wanted a system that secure, or more accurately, nobody wanted a system, nobody wanted to pay in performance and usability, the price of a system that secure. And I wound up canceling the project in, uh, in, in 1990. Um, one of the one of the sadder days of my life, but uh, but clearly the right decision is if we had continued to build it, we wouldn't have sold enough and we would have lost a ton of money uh, trying to enhance it and, and, uh, and, and, and support it over the years. Uh, I can answer more questions about, about the cancellation decision um, and, uh, and what I mean by losing more money um, when, we, when we get to the to the end, if you, if you're interested, um, so that was that was mistake two, um, you know, sort of closely linked to uh, to the Bellapagula mistake and and doubling down to make a bigger and more expensive mistake. After an, another another um, 
Another product of that same deck era uh, was what we called the DESNIC, the Digital Ethernet Secure Network Controller. Um, DEC had adopted Ethernet in the mid 80s. Um, and I assume you've studied Ethernet. You know, it's basically one, a single shared medium um, and anybody can transmit or receive on that medium. Um, and without, without encryption, you know, anybody can hear, hear what anybody else is saying or anybody can spoof what anybody else claims to be saying. Um, our DEC product family at the time used at least a couple of transport protocols. Uh, one of them was DECnet, which was DEC's proprietary um, networking protocol for connecting its own products together. Another was LAT, which was stood for local area terminal protocol, and it was used to connect uh, servers that uh, were users dialed in or connected with DOM terminals, um, connect the terminal servers to uh, uh, to, to time-shared uh, time mini computers. Um, and so we had multiple transport protocols running over, over ethernet. We obviously wanted a security solution or we wanted a security solution. And what we came up with was, the, was Desnick. And Desnick, this is a, a, a drawing from a, from a, pat, from a, from a patent, uh, looked like this. You had in, encryption controller boxes which weighed about 20 pounds and supported four nodes each. Um, and, and each of them had enough logic to keep the individual nodes separated. Um, and so, uh, so information uh, would flow. Uh, the, lost the cursor. All right, well, in, information would flow from, um, from, from, uh, from an end node, say A1, up through encryption controller A, then through the transceiver and onto the onto the network, uh, down to to encryption controller N, um, and then back to uh, back to node N one where it would where 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 the encryption controller N would decrypt and it and it would uh, flow back and flow next to node N one, um, and the four I think it was four N nodes per per controller for a way of offsetting the cost of, of building this thing in, in discrete logic. Um, we also built a key distribution center, which was basically the same controller hardware with slightly different software and data. And it would uh, establish authorized um, and keyed connections between that allowed say A1 to talk to N8 if that was what it wanted to do. Um, and so it was. It was a. It was a pretty nice solution, and it had some appeal. Um, but um, but there's always a but. Um, and in in the Desnick case, it had both uh, what Salter would refer to as technological and fundamental problems. The the hardware was too costly, and we had performance problems. Um, and you know, so that was our technological problem. Um, the fundamental problem. Was that it was a uh, you know sort of a solution to the to the wrong to the wrong problem. Uh, the decknet decknet was going away. Terminal concentrators were going away. Um, 
all the other vendor proprietary networking protocols were going away and the world was moving to internet protocol. And the right answer would have been a software implementation of end-to-end -end encryption at the IP layer, um, which would have, been, would have been great. But if you said TCP IP within the bounds of Digital Equipment Corporation, that was what, what, what you might think of as a career limiting move. And so uh, we really had to do something that would work, um, that would work with, the, with the then DEC proprietary protocols. Um, the DASNEC IP um, and people did, use, did in fact use it to secure IP networks, but it wasn't a real success because it was too expensive and had a lot, you know, basically the uh, protocol independence uh, drove a solution that just wasn't, wasn't the right one for the time. So that was, that was, that was mistake three. Um, by the time that, that SVS was canceled and, and the Desnick actually made it to market, um, uh, digital as a whole was going into, uh, into a decline um, caused primarily by their, I, would, I guess I would say their failure to pick up on the PC revolution, failure to pick up on uh, graphic workstations quickly enough, um, and maybe their failure to, to get on board with, uh, with TCP IP networking quickly enough. And so I left DAC in, in 92, worked for a couple of years with MITRE again, and then joined Trusted Information Systems in, in 94. Trusted Information Systems had built with DARPA funding um, an application firewall toolkit. It was a, it was, people didn't refer to open source back that long ago, but it was basically an open source deliverable that we put up on the web and anybody could download and use to implement a firewall for their own use. We retained um, the rights to productize um, Gauntlet, uh, the, uh, the, the firewall toolkit, and, and our product was called Gauntlet. And it was the firewall toolkit code plus a little management software. Um, and at, at various points, we, uh, we actually packaged it with hardware. So you could buy a box with the firewall uh, software preloaded and somebody would come out and configure it for, for your installation um, and it would be up and running. Um, it was reasonably successful, um, but in the, in the in the process of, of running that, pro, uh, that product, I made, made a couple of mistakes and they were both connected to, you know, sort of the, the fundamental principles um, of, of, having, um, of, of, of having complete mediation and especially minimal trusted code. You know, we thought that, you know, if you didn't have much software, you couldn't make many mistakes um, and so that would lead to a secure solution. Um, and I made two mistakes, both connected to the sort of minimization. One of them is I didn't invest soon enough or deeply enough in a fancy management graphical user interface. Um, you know, uh, you had to go in and configure the gauntlet firewall by building ASCII text tables 
um, of who could talk to who and what node was where, what the IP addresses were, and users didn't like that. They wanted to point and click even by, uh, even by 1994, 95, and we didn't have enough of that capability soon enough. Uh, specifically, when we ported, um, the Gauntlet ran on, uh, on BSD Unix. When we ported it to NT, uh, we, there was one feature called network transparency that would basically let the system detect connectivity uh, without much user intervention, without configuration. Um, and we getting that on, on the Unix systems was pretty simple. Getting it into uh, on NT at that time would have required a complex hack um, that we were loath to do. And we went back and forth arguing with Microsoft about giving us an API to make that function simpler. They didn't do it in the time uh, um, in the in the time frame we needed, and uh, so we we went with with manual con configuration uh, rather than trying to build that hack. Um, those two things sort of reduced the user usability and acceptability of, uh, of of Gauntlet, and we probably weren't enough of a marketing company anyway. Uh, but the bottom line was that Checkpoint Firewall One. I think it's probably still sold. Um, had a had a, a a really slick graphics interface. Had better NT support, and they ate our lunch. Uh, the company was was sold about a, a year after I left, and the product rattled around the industry for probably eight, 10 more years, um, and then uh, I think it's now disappeared from view. So um, sad story. Um, no excuses or maybe 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 prioritizing prioritizing a set of security principles at, at the at the expense of the market was a uh, was in retrospect not the right thing to do um, another sort of interesting interesting mistake in in today's world um, had had to do with, uh, with uh, what, what was called a key escrow system. I don't know whether you've followed the, uh, the, the debates among uh, FBI, Justice Department and so on, and, uh, and the civil liberties and internet community about law enforcement access to encrypted information. But that debate has been around for almost 30 years now. Um, and it started with a system called Clipper, which um, was, uh, was a, uh, actually it was a, a secure voice uh, device that sat between a telephone and the, uh, and, and the wire, I, no, it sat between telephone handset and the telephone and provided encryption, but did it in such a way that there was an extra key involved that was held by a couple of government agencies and could be recovered to break your encrypted communications if, if the government decided it needed to do that. Um, and that was, was controversial. Uh, TIS was pro-crypto export. They thought that people should have uh, access to encryption uh, worldwide, um, thought that um, 
thought that um, that that the export controls were bad, thought that the clipper chip was bad. Um, and our CEO, the late Steve Walker, asked me to invent a way to invalidate a couple of government claims, namely that you the only way to meet their requirements was to uh, use a non-public algorithm implemented in hardware and um, and and to and and to use, um, yeah, those, those were the requirements, the non-public algorithm and a hardware implementation. And so I came up with a solution that implemented that could be implemented in software, met the stated government requirements, and still provided uh, key escrow access um, and a, a level of security for for users within that context. When that happened, when I came up with that solution, our CEO, who had previously been um, pro crypto export opposed to the clipper chip, decided that, hey, maybe there's a market, commercial market for, key, for a key escrow solution, we'll sell it. And so uh, we invested significant resources um, in building and selling a key escrow solution. Actually, one of the versions was, was added to, to the gauntlet firewall um, with the aim of, of meeting customers' needs for being able to export encryption and still having, having government license because the government could, could intercept. There's more to the story than that, but I think that's enough to give you a sense of what happened. And um, in, in the ensuing scuffle, um, the investment distracted the company from the gauntlet business. So we didn't, we didn't invest as much in, in, in graphical user interface or, or uh, NT implementation as we probably, as we should have. And then um, after arguments back and forth with civil liberties groups in the industry and so on, the government abandoned the, uh, the key escrow mandate. And that would, although we claimed that there were commercial needs for key escrow, uh, the fact of the matter is that you know once the government abandoned the key escrow mandate, all the customers and uh, and resellers abandoned the key escrow mandate, and we were left with six patents, but no uh, but no income. Uh, so a lesson a, a lesson learned there um, in in the process. Final final mistake is. I think of as much more recent. This is the only mistake that I'm going to associate with with Microsoft. Um, in 2002, um, we we you know after after some real you know disasters or at least you know major embarrassments associated with the security of Windows software, um, we took the entire Windows division and stood them down. Um, gave them all training on what we understood then uh, to be secure development. Um, and uh, then, then, you know, we, we trained them uh, for a half a day, you know, each, each, every engineer got a half day training. Uh, there were about 8,500 engineers sent them off to uh, try to improve the security of the product. Um, and a lot of that worked very well. Um, 
but one of the things that our training tried to do was to teach our project in, product engineers to think like hackers and find vulnerabilities and invent attacks. And it turned out that a few could, a few of those 8,500 could, but most couldn't. Um, and so our, our investment in teaching them to think like a hacker, to invent new vulnerabilities from scratch really didn't work. Um, fortunately, we had other things like running static analysis tools, looking for specific code patterns that we taught them, um, building specific kinds of tests, looking at specific uh, configurations, doing what, what we call threat modeling, that's an, another story. Those did work. So overall, um, there were there were certainly benefits from it, but um, but we we assumed that we could teach all our developers to think like hackers, and they'd all find new classes of vulnerabilities by understanding what a vulnerability was, uh, and that that just didn't that just didn't pay off. We didn't get a payoff in vulnerabilities that corresponded to the effort people should. Paid, uh, put on it, and they should have been paying more, putting more effort on uh, code reviews for, for known bad patterns, um, either manually or, or with the static analysis tools. So another lesson learned. So here's, here's sort of the bottom line that I've taken away from those, um, from those uh, 50 or so years of, of, of more mistakes I'm not sure more, mis more mistakes than I care to admit. I guess I just admitted them. Uh, you know, the, the customer's right. Um, even if the, even, even if the, if, if you think the customer's wrong from a security fundamentals or, or what, what he or she should be wanting, um, the customer gets to, to decide whether they use your tech, technology or not. And that's um, and that that turns out to be really really important. I mean, it, it sounds sort of stupid to say, but when you're a security person, you think security is is the thing that it's about. And if the customer doesn't agree and you can't convince them, then then that's not going to end well for you. Um, usability is important. I know people spend a lot of time now on on trust user experience and secure usability. Um, and that, you know, that's that's a that's a good thing. Um, it's something that I think the uh, the security field came to light, and is is very important. Um, security isn't everything. I think I just said that. I'm talking about customers. Um, it's it's a balance. Um, something that I've learned a couple of times, both with the Orange Book and and with uh, the key escrow exercise, is that. The government is perfectly capable of promising you that they're going to go in a certain direction and that their standards and requirements are going to create a market. And the government is also perfectly capable of changing its mind or backing off or granting waivers. So you really want to think carefully before you decide that a government security requirement is going to create a market that you're going to fulfill. Um, you know, that's not, that's not guidance for government contractors, obviously, you know, if they're paying you a contract, they're paying you a contract, 
But if you're trying to build a commercial product based on a government rent mandate, that may or may not end well. And you need to really think, you know, how am I going to sell this even if, uh, even if, the, uh, if the government changes its mind? Um, time to market um, is better than perfect. Uh, if you fool with security long enough, it may have moved on and you may have the best buggy whip in, in Kansas or something. Um, and then finally, um, think about what your, your organization uh, norms are telling you as you're trying to build a solution. Uh, the norm at, trust, at uh, digital equipment was... Uh, was uh, DECnet and LAT, you know, our proprietary protocols. And the, and the reality was we would have been better off with, with IP. The norm at, at TIS was, uh, was, was small, you know, small, simple, minimal code, uh, trust at all cost. Um, and we would have been better off building a hack for transparent, for transparent firewall access and building a big complex GUI that people liked and would use to configure their firewalls. So, um, so a lot of a lot of challenges as you're as you're planning and strategizing uh, to to do something that is successful. And and my definition of success is really something that people will use that will help them get better security, not something uh, not something perfect that maybe maybe nobody wants. So with that. Um, I think I'm a little longer than I had hoped to be, but um, got some time for questions and Spaff said uh, that it's the, the last slaughter. You don't have to walk to your next class. So if we stop now, let, let's take some questions. Can you see the question and answer window there, Steve, or would you yeah, like I need to open it? Okay. How, do, how does, how do, how do, okay, somebody asks, how do, I, I'll, I'll do, I'll do these, I'll do these unless we get overwhelmed, at which point, you know, we, you know, I'll, I'll punt it, punt it to you folks. Um, how does Bellopadula deal with compartments? Those technically would be peer levels above uh, top secret. Um, so, um, the, um, it's a lattice is the, is, is the, the answer. Uh, so you deal with um, you you deal with the security levels as um, you know thing, as as integers with a less than greater than comparison, and you deal with uh, with compartments as uh, as, um, as as binary attributes they're there or not, and you deal with them by set inclusion. So uh, uh, top secret. Um, Apple banana dominates secret banana. Top secret, um, top secret Apple banana and secret cherry are incomparable. Um, is 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 that is that is that an answer? I don't know whether I don't know whether people can can, answer, can talk back or whether they have to uh, to type their questions. But but if you if you can if you can talk if you can talk and you have uh, Want want follow up? Uh, you know, either type or holler. Thank you. I was just uh, typing the um, question, but uh, yeah. So basically, you're saying that um, 
if I needed to move a piece or copy or make a piece of information available in more than one compartments, that would be equivalent to applying an additional label to it, right? It's, it, if you, if it, the, the compartment, the compartments are, are, um, are, are orthogonal, um, compartments are orthogonal to the, the security levels. And mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're a set of individual attributes and you can, um, and you know, to, to read, to read, to read, a, uh, to read a document or an object with, uh, with, with compartments, uh, compartment, compartments associated with it, you have to have all those compartments on your, uh, on your process. Yeah. And basically if, if, I needed to have information from one compartment accessible in another compartment that would require an external, it would not be the user doing that, but it would be an external force that would basically change the label or add an additional label, right? Yeah, that's, that. If, right. If you, if, you know, let, let's say, let's say if I have top secret, top secret Apple banana, and I want to share information derived from that with somebody who, who only has access to secret and cherry, you know that's a case that I was talking about. You know when I was talking about the 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 model. You know you you have to you have to drill a hole in the model somehow to get that information through. Yep, yep, got it, got it. Thank you. Okay. Other other questions? Let's see. There, I've got got. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Somebody. Bill, Bill Malik, which is a name I remember from the past. In a sense, the government didn't abandon the key escrow initiative so much as redirect the funding to crypto AG. <laughs> That's a different story, Bill. Other <laughs> uh, uh, other questions. Well. Um... I'll uh, I'll pop in here and uh, uh, ask if you could say a couple words about what SafeCode is doing now uh, and what you're enabling in the community because you've you've retired but you've not you're still at it so uh. <laughs> okay so so SafeCode is an organization been around for about fifteen years. And we really do two things at this point. Uh, one of them is that we, we, we have our members work together to share best practices and techniques for building, secure, building software securely. Um, you know, how, you know what, what, kind of, what kind of testing approaches, um, what kind of training, um, you know, can we can we work together to build training developer training that then we can then use all use across the member organizations. And the other thing that we do pretty closely coupled is that a lot of what we do is aimed not only for sharing among the members, but we make that public. So if you go to the SafeCode website, um, there's a series of blog posts uh, that are basically an introduction and recommendations and trade-offs about using fuzzing tools to improve uh, product security. 
there's another series that's uh, underway. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm delinquent reviewing the next couple of posts about the transition to post-quantum encryption. Um, there's a series um, that's, that's going on about uh, developer training, what kind of training the, the developers need and, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you get and deliver that. There's a series uh, from about a year ago about organizing security champions, basically people in a product group who are the security advocates for, uh, for, for, building, uh, for building products securely. Uh, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of, of different topics, all associated with soft building software securely, um, and most of them uh, shared with the community, uh, anybody, basically anybody who wants, to, uh, who wants to download them or read them or use them. That's great. Um, and I, I hope some of the uh, listeners, uh, both in person now and uh, for the recording, do check out the site. There is some really valuable information there. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's lots of information. Look at, look at the blog, look at the documents. There are a couple of, a couple of longer documents, you know, supply, supply chains, another topic. Um, there's a, a fundamental practices for secure development that, that uh, folks may, may find uh, interesting just in terms of, you know, sort of what the, uh, the, the SDL approach to secure development has evolved into. Well, I'm not seeing any uh, new questions open up here. And so uh, uh, we're at close to the end time and uh, no questions. So Steve, thank you so much for taking time to speak to us today. And I hope maybe we can get you back on a, another occasion, maybe even in person. Uh, uh, and that would be uh, great fun to hear some more about lessons learned. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be happy. I'd be, I mean, the, 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 the lessons learned talk is, is sort of more historical. I'd, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be happy to talk about, you know, sort of, as well about what works and doesn't in in secure development because I think that's you know that's that's possibly more you know more, more relevant to today and the and the way people actually create and operate security programs. Thank you for inviting me, Svaf. Thank you um, uh, to the folks at Sirius and, and looking forward to seeing you again. All right, all right, everybody. Thank you for attending and uh, stay safe. Bye for now. Thank you all. Bye-bye.